Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel. He is the Messiah from the line of David. Matthew shows us that Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. Matthew tells us Jesus is going to bring God's blessing to all the nations, just like Moses did. Jesus' kingdom is about God's rescue operation for the whole world. It's an upside-down kingdom where there are no privileged members. Everyone is invited. Everyone is called to turn, to repent, to follow Jesus, and to join his family. Matthew is about the people who are unimportant, the nobodies, the irreligious. These are the people who are transformed by their willingness to trust, to have faith in Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here today at First Christian Church. To those of you in the East Auditorium, I'm really glad you're with us. To those of you here in the West, I'm really glad you're with us as well. I'd invite you to take a Bible, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 4. It's about this far through the Bible, uh, three-quarters of the way through. If you don't own a Bible, we'd invite you to take the one that's in the pew rack in front of you here in the West, or somebody's passing out some Bibles right now in the East Auditorium. And if you don't own one, take that home as our gift to you, please. That'd be really cool. For guests, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and as I said, we're really, I'm really glad to be here because yesterday, yesterday I was at the mall. It's got nothing to do with preaching, but yesterday I was at the mall. The strangest thing happened. I was walking down, and, and some little girls had set up Girl Scout cookie display, and they're selling Girl Scout cookies. And um, <laughs> this little girl says, would you like to buy some cookies, sir? And I said, no. And she was really a strong salesperson. She said, would you really need... I'm, no, I said, no. I'm walking at the mall. I'm trying to be less fat. I'm too fat. To which her mother said, well, you can just give us money if you want. <laughs> which was fine, except I'm, it immediately made me think, so in other words, yes, chubby, you'd better not buy any cookies, but you give us money instead. Was that what she was thinking? So I'm really glad to be amongst friends today, and if anybody calls me chubby, I'm not going to be happy with you. All right, so, nothing to do with preaching. Just an interesting moment in my life. Uh, you know, Leslie, many of you know that uh, Leslie and I met when we were in college some time ago. It was just after electricity was discovered, and so uh, it was a long, long time ago. We met at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The key feature of that campus is that it's the campus of prayer. Right in the very center of the campus is a building that you can see it on, on the screens today. It's an, uh, an architect's rendition of what a very tall cross might look like in modern day. It's uh, some 200 feet tall. When you stand at its base and you look up and you see those spikes around it, it's, um, looks like a, it's supposed to look like the crown of thorns that was on Jesus' head. And there's 24-hour prayer that takes place in that building uh, around the year. So if you're newer to Christianity or perhaps younger than me, perhaps you're unfamiliar with ORU's story and how it began. Long story short, the university was founded by one of our nation's first televangelists, namely a man by the name of Oral Roberts University. There's plenty of legend about his ministry and about his life. Some of it is fact, some of it is fiction. Um, at times, he was painted with a broad brush uh, that came from the moral failures of other tarnished televangelists 
particularly in the 80s and into the 90s. And Leslie and I were there at those, at those moments, and uh, we were on campus, and those broad strokes of um, national derision, I will tell you, were unwarranted. Um, we were there. He died in 2009. Uh, we, we saw um, the students, he was the president of the university, so he was called President Roberts. We saw President Roberts, Les and I saw him probably a couple times a week. Uh, we were the campus worship leaders. I played piano, Leslie led worship, and so twice a week, it was our responsibility uh, to lead the entire campus in, in, in worship. 5,000 people in attendance each week. And um, I played... As a matter of fact, I want you to see, you can see, if you look on the uh, lower right-hand side of the chapel, uh, you can see that there's some empty seats there. And uh, those are the seats for the musicians. And the guy in the purple shirt has obviously got the same job I had when we were there, because that was my seat. I was assigned to sit in that seat. I sat there hundreds of times, twice a week. Um, and there's a set of stairs right in front of him where if there's something that needs to happen on stage, they decide to sing a song at the last minute. The piano player is expected to know it or be able to figure it out, play it by ear, and make it happen. And so I was there, and um, consequently, because uh, as musicians we sat there, and we were also backstage before every service, we spent a long time with Roberts and um, saw President Roberts as up close and personal like many people didn't. Uh, he had a TV personality here in the country, but we, I mean, saw him well, as a flawed man, yes. All preachers are flawed people. Uh, just live in my house, you'll discover that. Uh, but I, I also knew him to be a man of great morality and great prayer and concern for not only the nation, but particularly for his students and where they would go. And a large campus for a small, for, a, for a, if you will, for a a Christian university, probably one of the larger ones in the country. He would often speak to the students as a father would, encouraging, conjoling, sometimes warning. And while preparing for this weekend's message, uh, some of the things he said to us on a regular basis came to mind. And um, it's appropriate given that we're going to look today at Jesus' response to temptation. How do you respond to various ways that just sin can be in front of you and you say, how am I going to, there's a temptation there, what am I going to do? He would, or would often say, hey, when it comes to doing life, guys, don't touch the gold, the glory, or the girls. If you think about it, now, in our day and age, when sexually oriented material is directed to both men and women, we'd need to paraphrase his comments and perhaps and say, don't touch the gold, the glory, the girls, or the guys. Maybe that's the way we would say it today. But if you think about the gold, be careful what you do with the money, be careful what you do with all the power, and be careful what you do with people. In many ways, it's very, very apropos for... Um, for our present age, and particularly in light of what Scripture has to say. We're looking in the book of Matthew right now. Um, you may recall that Matthew is a biography of Jesus, written by, we believe, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. It was written for a Jewish audience. When we read today, we're going to be looking over the shoulders of Jewish people and see what they would understand. And if you're not Jewish, uh, like me, I'm not Jewish, then what would we learn if we could get some Jewish eyes? And just a little bit of context for those who may be joining us today. We left off last week as Jesus was baptized. And as he was baptized, this voice from heaven identified who it was that was getting baptized. God in heaven says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. 
And that's important because whenever you see the language Son of God, for the most part in Scripture, it's identifying one person, and it's usually reserved when the writer wants to point out that this Son of God, this Jesus, it's language that is tied always to the way in which this man right here is going to be uh, the object of derision and the object in which people... uh, way in which sin is, the atonement for people's sins, that, that through the Son of God, there's only one Son of God who can take on the sins of the world. And so whenever you read the Son of God, you've got to think, okay, atonement for sins, atonement for sins, and we'll be seeing that as we read Matthew with today. We're beginning at verse 1. Right after the baptism, Jesus was then led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Do you think? 40 days. No food. I'd be ready to eat something, okay? And so if I'm ready to eat something, what's going to happen? The tempter, the devil comes to him and said, if you're the son of God, there's that language, son of God. Got to think, okay, if you're the one who's going to provide forgiveness of sins, if if humanity's going to look to you for the forgiveness of their misdeeds, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus, as hungry as he is, doesn't take the temptation. He responds with scripture. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city. Now, so you may notice he's out in the wilderness initially, right? And then he goes to the holy city, the holy city of being Jerusalem. Inside the city of Jerusalem, at that that day, the city was um, the old city that's in the capital, the the city of Jerusalem today. But uh, the old city is a mile square. It's got a wall all around it. Built by King David, 2000, I mean, 1,000 years before Jesus, so 3,000 years ago. And inside the old city, there's a raised section called um, the Temple Mount. And on top, of that temp, on top of that mount is a big temple that Solomon built. Again, 1,000 years before Jesus, Solomon was David's son. And uh, so they take, the devil takes Jesus to the temple, and he stands him up on the highest point of the temple in the, in the old city, and he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands, and you will not strike your foot against a stone. In other words, if you really are God, if you really are going to be the one who forgives sins, then shouldn't you have all sorts of power and all sorts of ability? And um, the scriptures say that, you know, if if you could jump off here and the angels would watch over you. I like the way one translation puts it, that the angels have responsibility so you'll never even stub your toe. You should never get harmed. And Jesus comes back with scripture again. It's also written, don't put the Lord your God to a test. So now he's had two temptations. Now comes a third. The devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus won't have anything to do with this. It's away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, I, I need to tell you this, friends, that in 30 years of pastoral ministry, I've not dealt with this topic or this particular passage from the pulpit very often. As a matter of fact, the front office graciously keeps track of what we're preaching so that we make certain that we don't come back to the same passage over and over again. And our records indicate that in all the years that I've been preaching, I've ever only actually broached this subject with this particular passage one other time. Here's why. Because as I listen to other preachers deal with this passage, I've kind of struggled with how they've interpreted it. 
I've not always appreciated what they've done. And consequently, I've been concerned about what might be in the life of the congregation from, you know, other ministries and, you know, things of the past. My concern is that sometimes preachers get a little bit too specific. We, uh, we, we make this almost an allegory, leaving far too many options for people to have outs when it comes to temptation. We say, well, this t- temptation means that, and that temptation means that, and this means that. And it almost... We, we create these specific formulas to get, if you want to get rid of this temptation, then you've got to say these particular words, and if you, if, you, if you fall to the temptation, then you didn't say the words the right way. You've used the wrong formula. I'd rather take the story of Jesus' temptation at face value, not as an allegory, but really answering this question, did it really happen, and did the devil really confront Jesus? And I am absolutely convinced that truly happened. Now, so are you going... I would suppose legitimately, saying, oh, you know, Wayne, that seems, that seems ludicrous. Surely you don't think there's a devil. And if there is, and if this was to take place, it doesn't make sense. I mean, he's been fasting for 40 days, and somehow or other he's got the physical stamina to go to all these places to climb to the top of the temple. I mean, that's the top of the, the city. And then he's got to go from there to some mountain where he's going to see everything in the world. If you believe, it doesn't make sense. Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe he's the savior of all humanity? And do you believe that he was born without the interaction between his mother's egg and a father's sperm? Do you believe that, a virgin birth? Those are core values of Christian faith. And you really can't call yourself a Christian if you don't believe those kinds of statements that he died for our sins, the Savior of all humanity, and it came through a virgin birth. But I would suggest to you, if you believe those core values of Christian faith, what's so hard about an interaction between Jesus and the devil? I don't think it's a big deal after that. You accept it in faith. I have no idea how they got from place to place. I remember as a kid reading this passage thinking, Oh, it was like Star Trek. They got in some machine. They got to go. I have no idea. I don't know how Jesus and the devil got to various places. All we know is that there was some sort of interaction. Perhaps it was in a vision type setting. Perhaps they traveled. I'm unclear, but I'm convinced they met. I'm convinced that there were three offers and three responses. The devil says, here are three things that I can offer you. And Jesus responds by quoting scripture and saying, I'm not interested. Three temptations Three, no, I'm not going to fall. And within that setting, without it being allegory, there are some absolute lessons that we can learn when it comes to our own lives, when it comes to temptation. Because what goes on here? Well, go back and look at it with me again. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus responds, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you think about it, this challenge right here, this temptation is about stuff, isn't it? I need something. It's Maslow's hierarchy. I, I'm, I haven't eaten for 40 days. I need some food. He's hungry. The basic stuff of life. Temptation comes to us through our basic needs for stuff. We all need it. We need food. 
It's going to be cold in the next couple days, we understand. We're going to need shelter. We're going to need the roof not to leak. You're going to need to wear clothes. And there's stuff you need beyond that. To be human means you have to be in relationships. But when it comes to the stuff, that's when, man, that's when things get out of the way. We're talking about sexuality run amok. What is sexuality run amok? I want stuff. I want that person. I want, I want that image. Or you would talk about greed. And I want more, more, more. It's about stuff, isn't it? No matter what the temptation, no matter how you label it, it's about stuff. It seems to me, how does imagine it does to you too, that some people end up with more stuff than others. They look at their, you look at their house and you go, man, look at that lovely home they have. Is that an indication that God loves that person more than the person who doesn't have as much stuff? No, in fact, it means the person who's got a lot of stuff has way more responsibility. Demanding stuff, though, moving from needs to wants to greed is not healthy. Allowing greed to surpass meeting needs. You say, I'm not saying allowing stuff to meet surpassing needs. It's one thing to have a lot of stuff, but allowing greed to surpass meeting needs is unbiblical. Incidentally, can, can I just remind you that just because a person has a lot of stuff doesn't mean he or she is greedy any more than a person with little is necessarily righteous. I know righteous rich people, and I know greedy poor people. You do too, right? You've met people along the way who have a lot of stuff, and you go, man, I wish I could be with them. Not out of envy, but just that I'd have their spirit. And you've met people who are poor, and you go, man, I'm glad I'm not like that person. Jesus didn't buy the devil's approach, number one. No, nope, I'm not. I'm hungry. I have a need that I'm not going to succumb. I'm going to rely on God. Let's take a look at his next approach, the tempter's next approach. The devil took him to a holy city. Had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you're the son of God, there's that language again, the son of God business. If you're the one who's going to provide for people's forgiveness of sins, throw yourself down. Show everybody that you really are the son of God. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. They'll lift up your hands, your, their hands so that you won't strike your foot against a stone. Show everybody, excuse me, show everybody that you're the son of God. And Jesus says, mm -mm, not right now. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Now, I want you to remember as we look at this that we've been saying over the last few weeks that Matthew, as he writes this book, is going to consistently draw parallels between Jesus and Moses, Moses being the key figure in the life of the nation of Israel. And Matthew wants his readers to understand that Jesus is going to be an even better Moses. Moses led the nation out of slavery. Jesus is going to lead people out of the slavery of sin. And so he's going to make these parallels. Moses, for example, was in the desert. He went up on a desert mountain. And what did he do while he was up there? He was up there for 40 days. The story tells us in the Old Testament. He was up there for 40 days. And while he was up there, he met with God. And when he came down, God had given him the tablets, uh, these two stone pieces that had the Ten Commandments written on them. Now in comparison, here it is, centuries later, Matthew's saying Jesus is out in the desert. And instead of meeting with God, who does he meet with? He meets with the devil, and the devil is challenging him. Are you the son of God? Are you really who that voice from heaven back at your baptism said you are? 
This temptation is about Jesus' self-identity. The devil show the devil, pardon me, the devil challenges Jesus, saying, you know, maybe we'd all be better off if you showed your true stripes. He, he appeals to Jesus' basic identity. There's no way you can be the Son of God, because if you were, you'd do this or that, or you'd jump off the temple and everybody would see you. And since you're not doing that, then that probably means you're a fake. This whole ministry thing, this Son of God ministry deal that you're going to be unfolding, apparently, it's a charade. I should remind you, in the midst of this, the devil is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. Now, it's reasonable to think that he too knows by now that Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of God. And he knows the implications of that, that sin is going to be forgiven. (laughs) But the ability to see the future and how that's going to play out is only known by God. It's only God who knows both the future and the past. The devil is like us. We can only look in the rearview mirror and say, that's how it was in the past and make some projections about the future. And Satan is really worried. If you really are the Son of God, then you're going to offer a sacrificial death. This atonement, this forgiveness of all sins is coming. And he wants to see if he can derail Jesus. It's a no-win setting for Jesus at first glance. Because if he responds by showing his power, then the tempter is won. But if he doesn't show his power, then he looks like a charade. He looks weak. It's similar to us when it comes to temptations. We have temptations when it comes to greed and just I want, 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 want that or this or the other or that person. But then we also have temptations about how we view ourselves in the back of our heads. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you ever heard these kinds of thoughts? You're not really up to snuff, you know, Wayne Kent. You're really playing a charade. You say you're following Jesus. If so, then why do you act so non-follower type? Why, why are you like that, Wayne? That's the voice of Satan. Or maybe you're not a Christ follower yet, and you've decided, I can't really be a Christ follower because there's a voice in the back of your head that's saying, you know, I'll never make the grade. I'll never get there. Can I remind you, friends, that if you commit your life to Jesus Christ and you accept forgiveness through his work at Calvary on the cross, you know what? You are the redeemed of the Lord. Your sins are forgiven. You are somebody who's been purchased. You are worth great value because Jesus died on the cross. He gave his blood so that you would have forgiveness of sins. Don't believe the way in which the devil would tempt you to say, my self-identity is not really who I am. I, 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 I have the wrong view of how I should be. No, you are loved by God. And then we get... To the third way in which Jesus and the devil interact. The devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you'll do this, if you'll both bow down and worship me. And Jesus has had enough. He says, away from me, Satan. Here's my response to you, Satan. I'm not going to worship you. I'm going to worship the Lord your God, the Lord my God, or as the scriptures say, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So you've got stuff, you've got who you are, your identity, and now the devil is tempting Jesus with his ultimate weapon, power. If you do it my way, he's saying, everyone will follow you. (laughs) When I think about it, these three ways of temptation 
more or less describe all the struggles that we face regarding goodness versus the evil within us. We either want more stuff, or we're got problems with our self-identity puffed up to some extreme or to another extreme, think we're lower than dirt, or we simply want to boss people around and be the ones in charge. I want it my way. I want to be able to get to the end of my life and say, I did it my way. Hmm. Now, typically, you'd expect a preacher at this point to say, don't do that, to pound on a pulpit, right, and get a 30-pound Bible, wave it around in the air, and kind of sort, some sort of intimidation tactic and say, don't do that, don't, well, you know, I'm not all, always turned on to that approach. I'm somewhat suspicious of it. It sort of, sort of turns me sour because, frankly, it doesn't feel all that Jesus-like. It doesn't really feel New Testament. The, two te the New Testament isn't about don't do this or don't do that. Not always. It's far more about new behavior, new lifestyle approaches, more so than the restrictions of what you can't do. So rather than say, don't pay attention to your stuff and don't pay attention to yourself and don't pay attention to your power, don't, 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 I'd like to offer you some options to move away from temptations, offering new behaviors that could call us to the new life approaches. Move from greed to generosity, from self-promotions to servanthood, and being power-hungry to worshiping God. Instead of saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, just leave those behind. Step into new behavior. Time limits our ability to unpack all of that today, but let me summarize my understandings. It's one thing to say, I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'm going by sheer determination. Do you know what? You don't have enough determination to fight those. But when we choose to say, I'm not just gonna, I'm, it's not that I'm just not going to do something. Instead, I'm going to live differently by the power of God. I'm going to live in generosity. I'm going to live in servanthood. I'm going to live in worship to God. And the temptations of stuff, self, and power, they all begin to subside. You know why? Because it's trading bad for good. It's trading a loss for a win. It's trading, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to settle for second best. I'm going to take on the best approach, the best. How could I live best in the way in which God has made me? What, what are the things that, the way, the, who I am? As a redeemed person of God, if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, how is it that I'm not just going to say no to sin, but instead say yes to a whole lot of new stuff and a new approach? I'm, I'm not going to settle for second best. That's the answer. So let me explain it this way, how to do that. By telling you of something that's going on in Boston, Massachusetts right now. Boston, Massachusetts has a problem at present and have had for a number of years have a problem with wild turkeys in the city. Do you know about this? Here's what happened. When the settlers arrived from Europe and landed on the shores of what would be Massachusetts, they found there was wild game everywhere, including lots of wild turkeys. The forests teemed with game, ready for dinner tables. However, in the years soon thereafter, they began to clear the forests so they could create homes and little towns and villages, and they began to make, make places for farms. And over the next century or so, actually, the forests in Massachusetts were reduced down by two-thirds, down to one-third their size, is my understanding. And consequently, the game were being overkilled and, over, and, and overeaten, if you will, and uh, they disappeared. So that by 1847, 1847, okay, this is a long time ago, 
We were about animals disappearing from the face of the earth. Now, in 1847, the last wild turkey in Massachusetts, they caught it, they shot it, they stuffed it, and they put it on display at Yale University. This is what wild turkeys look like. 1847. The woods heard no turkey calls from wild turkeys, <clears throat> excuse me, for more than 100 years. 1847. All the way through to when some better minds began to think about how are we using the environment of Massachusetts. And so they let the, intentionally grew the forest back, and so that the forest back, they doubled the size in those hundred years of the forests. And um, biologists got involved and they said, let's reintroduce the game back to Massachusetts. So they went down to, um, to New York and trapped 37 wild turkeys. 37 wild turkeys, and they brought the turkeys from New York. I love saying that. The turkeys came over from New York. It just sounds like the things that us in the Midwest would say, right? So the turkeys came from New York. And so here's what happened. They brought those turkeys into uh, Massachusetts and they said, okay, uh, you turkeys do what turkeys do. Do what turkeys do, and that is make more turkeys and live out there in the forest. But what had happened, what they discovered is that in the years that, since they'd planted those forests, that they had intentionally let them just grow wild, and the underbrush was very, very thick, and the turkeys had to work really hard to get food. And right beside the forests was some cropland where farmers would come out on a regular basis and spread manure that was full of worms. And so the turkeys began to migrate, getting more and more in number, from the forests to the cropland. But they really didn't like digging around in you-know-what, in that manure stuff. And because they soon discovered that right beside the farmlands was the city, where the worms would end up on the sidewalk, and the cracks of the sidewalk, there were seeds there, and they didn't have to dig at all. They were there right for the, ready, for the, ready for the picking, if you will. So since 1972, the 37 turkeys have gone, I mean, they've multiplied. They've moved from the forests to the croplands, and now they are in the city of Boston. Boston City has a turkey problem, seriously. The turkeys puff out their chests, walking around the city. They are an urban nuisance. Pests run after people. They have, in some school settings, they have people who are responsible to get the turkeys away from the kids because the kids are afraid of them. <laughs> These aggressive birds are puffing themselves, full of pride, strutting around the city where they don't belong. They're settling for second best, aren't they? Turkeys aren't made for the city, they're designed for the forest. But they've chosen the easier life of the city, and their puffed out chests are actually quite false. They've chosen the wrong life approach. We're tempted to do the same. We choose to strut our stuff, our self, and our power instead of living in generosity, servanthood, and worshiping God. We puff at our chests in pride and say, I'm doing well, I've got it all covered. See, look what I have, my stuff, myself, and my power. But if you think about it, it all comes from the wrong places, doesn't it? We get it from cracks in the sidewalk, failing to live in the best way possible, and the adventurous approach of following God following God into the wonders and beauty of his forest. We take on a very tame give-me life, kind of a nuisance life. 
instead of a wild, enthusiastic quest with the Almighty. You do it. I do it. We choose second best and choose the wrong approach. Can I help you with that today? I'd like to. In your programs today, this was in it when you, this was there when you got your program today. And if you didn't get a program, here in the West Auditorium, there's some extra ones in the center aisle, upstairs and downstairs. And if you're in the center aisle, we need you to pass it along so that makes certain everybody gets one. In the East Auditorium, it was, we hope handed to everyone as you walked in the door. If you didn't get it, there were some folk walking around right now with some extra ones. In a few moments, I'm going to ask you to fill this out. Not yet. But I'm assuming that all of us needs, all of us need some help with one of these matters. My, my stuff. I have a problem. I want that, and I shouldn't have that. I know it's not right for me. And it could be a variety of different things when it comes to stuff. You know what, they, you know what it is. Or I have, a, I have a problem when it comes to my self-identity and what I really believe about myself. Or I have a problem with, I just choose to have my own power versus worshiping God. I'd like the pastors of this church to pray with you about that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to assume that you'd like to forego choosing second best. And we want to pray for you. This is going to be confidential between you and the pastors. As a matter of fact, if you're here with a spouse, or you're here with your parents, or your kids, or whatever, or a partner, this is not for another partner to look at, okay? This is for you. And we're going to have communion in just a few minutes. And I'm going to ask you uh, to start a sentence on this that says, Dear Pastor Wade and Pastoral Team, I am tempted by... I am tempted... And you fill in the answer. All right? I am tempted by... We're going to do it during communion because it's during communion that we remember that Jesus has forgiven these sins, right? That God has worked through the work of Christ on Calvary so that whatever you're tempted by can be forgiven. It's not wrong and it's not sinful to be tempted. It's sinful to give in to temptation. So in order to help you with that, we'd like to pray for you in the coming week. If you would like us to talk to you about that, you can see there it says, please contact me and you can put your name and just some way for us to reach out to you. And you, may, you don't have to put your name. It's between you and God. But if you'd like someone to say, one of the pastoral team to say, hey, can, can, can I have a chat? And can you help me come with some tools to deal with this temptation that I'm facing? We'd like to do that for you, okay? Because we're a church that believes in praying with you and for you and also helping you. So uh, no one else is going to see it. You fill it out during communion. If you're serving communion, would you go and prepare for that right now, please? And... Uh, it's not going into anyone's database or anything like that, okay? Here's what's going on. When, when the trays are passed today, if the trays come to you early, then fill this out after the trays. If they come to you late, then fill it out before the trays come to you. And you, you're going to say, hey, God, I've got a problem with this, and I need some help with me. And I'm asking Pastor Wayne and the pastoral team to pray with me about this. And At the end of the service, there'll be baskets at the back end of this room and coming down the, the, from the balcony. And in the East Auditorium, they're in the lobby there. Uh, coming out the, that door that you entered in, there'll be some baskets there. And seriously, I have already, from what we have this week, I have stacks of like this on my desk of this already. The goal is to pray. If you want some help, we'll reach out to you, okay? And as we eat and drink, 
Remember why we're eating and drinking? Paul the Apostle, when he's talking about Jesus coming and the, the, sec, the, um, the, the, the Last Supper, and they're eating and drinking, and you know that this is my body broken for you, this is my cup, and you hear that every week. But then he concludes that whole statement and says, we remember Jesus' death until he comes. In other words, remember that the Son of God, this one who provided atonement for sins, provided a way of escape for us. He gives us an example in Matthew 4. He shows us we can live accordingly. I invite you to pray with me, all right? Lord, in these next few minutes, while we take communion, it's very appropriate, Lord, that right now we should be focusing on what it means for us to experience your forgiveness. God in heaven, thank you that Jesus died on the cross, that his body was broken, his blood was given so that we would experience your complete work in our lives. And to that end, we're leaning into you really heavily, God, because the tempter comes to us in a variety of different ways. For some, Lord, it is in the matter to stuff, whether it be they want more people or they want more money, they want more good, whatever it is, God. And then for others, Lord, it's a case of they don't really believe who they are in you. And then, God, for others, it's a case they just, they're too puffed up with themselves. Regardless, forgive us of all of that and the various forms that it takes. We'll eat and drink experiencing your forgiveness today. In the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.